you have your Bibles this morning, let's go to Luke chapter 11. Luke chapter 11. And it's good to be gathered with God's people on a Sunday. Amen. It's good to actually be in the same room together. We'll be looking at Luke chapter 11. This is sweet communion, how the Trinity enriches your prayer life. Uh, if you now realize you went into the wrong one because you couldn't read the numbers on the door, I'll read this passage and then I'll pray long enough for anybody to sneak out and it won't be awkward and I won't be offended. No one will have their feelings hurt. So it'll be totally good. So Luke chapter 11 will be our passage. We'll read verses 1 to 13 and then we'll consider this, this topic together. Word of God reads, Now Jesus was praying in a certain place. And when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins. For we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. And lead us not into temptation. And he said to them, which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, friend, lend me three loaves for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, do not bother me. The door is now shut and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, though, he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend. Yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. And I tell you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. And the one who seeks, finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? This is the very word of the living God. Let's pray together as we think about this topic today. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for your grace. We are thankful that we are able to gather here today. God, that even as the the world is just increasingly against you in your good grace, there's still an allowance for churches to meet to some degree. Um, God, we are grateful even just for the technology we've had over the past few months, and yet we rejoice that we could be here in person today. Lord, I ask for you to work supernaturally to help us focus on your word this morning. I pray that you would help us to rejoice in the gift that is prayer and communion with you. Lord, let us lay aside secondary things and let us seek first the kingdom of God. Pray that you'd grow us this morning, that we'd be not only hearers of the word, but doers as well. Grow us in our love and in our understanding and our affection for you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, this morning we are going to look at two different topics that we as Christians typically shy away from when they come up. And those are the topics of prayer and the Trinity. And we typically shy away from these topics for different reasons. Prayer is something we all love. Prayer is something we all give lip service to. Carl Truman said the most intimate point of communion between God and man in prayer is prayer. Prayer is something that we rejoice in. With prayer, we get to go before the throne of the God of the universe. 
We get to commune with God. We get to cast our cares upon Him. We go before the throne of grace. And yet when we talk about prayer, it often is a topic that we feel guilty about. We talk about prayer the way we talk about healthy eating habits. We all know what we ought to do, but we often feel guilty that we're not following through on what we ought to do. We always say, like, oh, I know I need to be praying more. And so Christians will you know, shy away from prayer because of guilt. The Trinity is something we shy away from for a completely different reason. Whereas prayer leaves us convicted, the Trinity often leaves us feeling confused. We're not sure what to do with it. Uh, we know it's God is one and God is three and there's this formula and I learned a chart and some bad illustrations when I was younger, but I'm not sure what to do with the Trinity. And I often joke with our high school students that Christians typically view the Trinity the way students view the quadratic formula. Now, I'm hurting some of you that got out of high school back way back when. So quadratic formula, X equals negative B plus or minus the square root. And you can ask a high schooler or middle schooler around you and they'll finish the rest for you, etc. And it's this, this formula you learned in algebra. And they know what it is, but they don't know why it exists. And more importantly, they have no idea what relevance it possibly has for their life. I know this. I taught algebra for two years. I used to have a ministry of death. Now I have a ministry of life. And, and people, which is the most common remark I hear is, what purpose does this have for my life? And I would often go, none. And that's the answer. No, I'm just kidding. But, you know, that's the way they view the Trinity the same way. I know what it is. I'm not sure why I believe it's true. And I'm not sure what relevance it has to my life. And so the Trinity becomes this extra that we sometimes are embarrassed, not that we don't know enough about, but we also even get embarrassed about it in our evangelism. It becomes this sort of embarrassing appendix that we kind of wish wasn't there. It's this attachment to God that we're not really sure we know much about. Perhaps we can do without it. What, what I want to do this morning is help you to see that our view of prayer And our view of the Trinity can grow, can enhance, as we view both of these topics in light of one another. Because I want you to see is that there is a relationship between them. What I want to propose is that there's clarity, and that the doctrine of prayer and the doctrine of the Trinity are surprisingly and beautifully connected to one another. Look, we have been... uh, locked up the last few months. Even yesterday, my wife and I are like, it's weird. Like this is a 4th of July that's just different. You can't go out as much. There's just things that are shut down. Even just in LA County, those of you who live in other counties, I'm just, I'm envious of you in some degree because it's so weighty in LA. And what can happen in that situation is that your prayer life becomes stifling. You just get stuck in routine and you're stuck in a rut spiritually when every day is kind of like Groundhog Day. And what I'm hoping is that what we see is that as we think about prayer in light of the Trinity, that it will both revive and enrich your prayer life. That you will pray differently because of who God is in his triunity. So let me kind of give you a little uh, a roadmap of where we're going today. So this was part of a series we did in high school called Why We Love the Trinity. Um, here's a roadmap of where we're going. We're going to ask four questions. We're going to ask, what is prayer? Uh, so if you're a note taker, if you're one of those who wants to know exactly where we're going off the bat, this is it. Talk about what is prayer? Uh, How does the Trinity shape my prayers? We'll spend most of our time on that question. And then the last two, how do I pray to the triune God? 
And then the surprise ending is, how does the triune God pray for me? I will give a couple of book recommendations now, lest I forget uh, later. One of them... uh, uh, one of them is really, really simple. If I could just say, read only one of these, mine's all beat up because I've read it a ton. It's a little yellow book by Michael Reeves. It's called Enjoy Your Prayer Life. Enjoy Your Prayer Life. A great little resource, 35 pages, something you could read in about 20 minutes. It's, it's a short read. It's a great read. I think they sell them in the bookstore. You find online for like four bucks. So enjoy your prayer life. And then also by Reeves, if you want a little more on the Trinity, he has a book called Delighting in the Trinity. Um, it's clear, it's practical, it's, it's, it's theological, but also devotional. Um, so this is an, another just fantastic read. And if you want a little bit more of the weightier stuff, but good, Communion with God by John Owen. You'll hear me referencing this a lot today. John Owen thinks a lot about prayer and communion with God. And even in this book, he works through the Trinity, communion with the Father, communion with the Son, communion with the Spirit. So that's a great one. And then another one, if you're like, man, I really want some meaty stuff. This is Essential Trinity. It's about 20 chapters long. Every chapter is written by a, a different author. Um, there's a chapter in this that I will reference a lot from Carl Truman called The Trinity in Prayer. Honestly, the, the first nine chapters of this book are just kind of Let's see where the Trinity is in the Old Testament, in the epistles, in the non-Pauline epistles, in the Gospels. That's the first nine chapters. The last six chapters of this book are all just practical. How does the Trinity shape my life? It's really good. It's a little heady, but it's really good and worth the read. You'd be blessed by that. So that's where we're going. Those are some books I could recommend. Let's get into our questions here. What is prayer? What is prayer? We as Christians understand that prayer is something we value. It's something that the Scripture upholds. 1 Thessalonians 5.17 says, we pray without ceasing. Colossians 4 says, devote yourselves to prayer. We read in Acts chapter 6 that the apostles devoted themselves to the word and prayer. Ephesians 6, be on the alert in prayer. You read the book of Acts, and it just seems the normal pattern of the church is that they're praying together. Acts 1, they're praying in the upper room. Acts 2, the fellowship devotes themselves to prayer. Acts 12, they're praying when Peter is in prison. Prayer is just the normal lifeblood of the Christian. But what is it? Well, we, we've got a few definitions we can work with. Wayne Grudem de- defines prayer as just personal communication with God. Very simply, personal communication with God. When we think of prayer, and I meant to have this verse for y'all, but I don't. We think of prayer, we often think of Exodus thirty three eleven. Exodus 33.11, where it reads, Moses would speak to God face to face as a man speaks to his friend. What an amazing privilege that must have been. What an amazing experience to commune personally with the God of the universe. To to have an audience and a, a conversation with God. Prayer is personal communication whereby we draw near to God and he draws near to us. It's something we know as sinners, we just simply do not deserve. Jesus here says in Luke 11, pray to your father. That's just the first thing. If I'm defining prayer, I want to define it first as personal communication. Uh, John Bunyan, writer of Pilgrim's Strongest, says it like this. He says, prayer is a sincere, sensible, affectionate, pouring out of the heart or soul to God. It's speaking with God. 
That's why, remember, that prayer is not just a formula, it's a conversation. So that's why throughout the, the Bible, we find prayer in all sorts of circumstances. People crying out to God in joyful times, people crying out to God in times of despair, in times of trial. It's, it's seeking out the Lord. Um, that's why Matthew 6, 8, uh, Jesus warns about these kind of formulaic prayers. He says, do not be like the Gentiles who pray that way, for your Father knows what you need even before you ask Him. It's a personal conversation. It's a, it's a nearness to God. Psalm 73, 28. Uh, David says, but for, or sorry, Asaph says, but for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord my refuge that I may tell all your works. Nearness to God. That's what we're looking at in prayer. So it's communication. But let's think about that for a second. Does that mean we communicate with God in the same way we might communicate with our best friend? That we might communicate with the neighbor, we might communicate with a family member. Well, the answer to that is yes and no. Yes, in the sense that that communication is personal. I'm speaking with another person. But no, in the sense that our demeanor, our posture, is going to be informed by who God is. We speak to God as the one who is exalted, that he's holy. That is, that there's no one like him in the universe. And therefore, we ought to address him in that way. Uh, let me press into this a little bit more, uh, because we've understand, we, we've heard prayers that don't have that. We, we go to a summer camp, or we used to go to summer camp you know, before the age of corona, and we look forward to going again in 2028. But uh, you know, every year at camp, sometimes what they'll do is that the camp that we go to, the, they have their staff volunteers pray, and every once in a while, we all bow our heads and we hear this young girl, and I think she's sincere, and I think she truly loves Jesus, but she'll go, hey, God, it's me, as she like starts her prayer. And we all just kind of go, ooh, right? We go, like, oh, something's, something's wrong with that, right? You, you, you understand what I'm saying? That's, that's okay if you do. Uh, why is that? Well, because there's something in it that's not recognizing fully who God is. Let me tell you what John Calvin said. John Calvin is always supposed to make the youth pastor seem more mature than he is. So let's do that. Let's quote a little Calvin. Calvin says this, prayer is the chief exercise of faith. Prayer is the chief exercise of faith. Now let's think about this for a minute. What does that mean? Another author, Gary Miller, says that prayer is calling on God to come through on his promise. It's calling on God to come through his promise. So we have promise, we have faith, we have trust. So, so prayer is relational, but it's not superficial. When you and I relate to God, we don't relate to him based on our conceptions of who he is. We relate to him in response to who he has revealed himself to be. So when Calvin says that that prayer is the chief exercise of faith, where does faith, where does trust come in in prayer? The trust comes in that not only is God going to come through on what he has promised, but that God actually is who he has revealed himself to be. I'm not imagining what God is like in my head. Uh, The Christian is not consumed with a God of their own imagination, but we commune with God by faith as he has revealed himself. Prayer recognizes who God is. So even here in Luke 11, it begins with, Father, hallowed be your name. 
It's recognizing that there is a God in heaven. So it's recognizing all the things that God has said about himself, that he is both merciful and just and holy, and he keeps his promises, and he's eternal, and he's exalted, and yet he's near to those who fear him, Psalm 25. You're trusting all these things that God has revealed himself as you go to him in prayer. You go to him that he has no hint of sin, no defect in his person. He is both uh, imminent, he is is near, and yet he's transcendent. Now, doesn't that affect your demeanor when you pray? When you go to him, you're you're marrying these ideas in your head of who God is. It's going to affect your prayer life. Prayer is about communion with God. Prayer is about faith. Let me give you one other aspect of prayer to think through. Prayer is about utter dependence. It is about our utter dependence. You know this passage, 1 Peter 5, 6, and 7. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him, because he cares for you. It's often said that um, prayer is about aligning our will with God. And I, I believe that. I, I agree with that. That's, that's good for us. But, it, but it's also just about us casting our, our cares. It's about us bringing our needs to him. See, in prayer, we are bringing to God that which we cannot handle on our own that which we can't handle for ourselves. And so we humble ourselves and come to him. We come to him expecting him, asking him to help us. This this reflects dependence. Friend, I want you to think about what that says about prayerlessness. That prayerlessness and pride go hand in hand. The same attitude that says, I've got this, then doesn't pray. But those of us who recognize we are dependent upon God in all things will go to God in prayer. Prayer is true communion with, the, with God. It is, and it is a sign that we are helpless and he is supreme. So think about that in all our prayer. We praise him because he is God and he is greater than us. We thank him because he has provided all we needed. We ask for provision because we need him. We confess sins because we've sinned against him. We lament because he's our only hope. That's what we see here with prayer. I want to think about communion, think about faith, think about dependence. Michael Reeves says this again. This is why these little books I showed you, they're worth reading. Michael Reeves says this, your prayer life reveals how much you really want communion with God and how much you really depend on him. And this prayer It's communion with God that is personal, it's intentional, it's marked by reverence, dependence, understanding who he is, understanding who we are. And it's an amazing fact, right? We get to commune with the eternal God, which then brings us to our next question. How does God's triunity, and I'm picking that term on purpose, I'll say, how does God's triunity shape my prayers? I'm saying triunity because I don't want to think the Trinity as this formula and this thing. I just want you to think about God and that he is Trinity. How does this shape our prayer? Listen, there's a dilemma that's created. We think about communion. We think about nearness. We think about intimacy. We think about relationship. And that works well for us on a one-to-one level. So how does that happen? How do you have relationship with someone who is one and someone who is three? Right? You've thought about that. How do I relate to someone who is one person but is also three persons? 
What do we do? Is this multiple personalities? Now, some of you that parent teenagers, you understand what it is to relate to someone who seems to be multiple people at different times of the year. That's a joke that parents of teenagers understand, maybe. But, but the point is, how do we relate to God like this? And, and then the questions like come up. Do I pray to the Father? And then do I pray to Jesus? And do I pray to the Spirit? Do I need to pray to all three of them equally? Do I need to make sure that Father gets more, Jesus gets a little less, and the Spirit gets a little less? But if I don't have it in balance, one of them will get jealous. Like, right, it gets into these questions of how do I pray to each one? And we are going to answer those, but we are actually going to answer those in question number three. Uh, Keep a tab here in Luke chapter 11. We're going to come right back to it. But you can jump over to Ephesians chapter 2. What we need to recognize is this, is that without... God's triunity. If God were not Trinity, that prayer as we know it cannot even exist. Christian prayer, as you and I think of Christian prayer, does not exist without the Trinity. Okay, here's Carl Truman on this. Carl Truman says, The Trinity is first significant, not so much for the shape of our prayers as for their foundation. In fact, if God were not Trinity, then specifically Christian prayer would not exist in any form. Where do we go with this? How do we think about this? I want to go back to that definition that I gave you from Bunyan earlier. But I I pulled a fast one on you. I only gave you part of that definition. Let me give you the full definition by Bunyan. And if if anyone like, man, I really want these, I can email you this PowerPoint later. I don't want anyone furiously trying to to write these down. I'll get this to you. But here's here's Bunyan's full definition from earlier. Bunyan writes, Prayer is a sincere, sensible, affectionate, pouring out of the heart or soul, here we go, to God through Christ in the strength and assistance of the Holy Spirit. His very definition of prayer itself is Trinitarian. In fact, you will find this saying, this this relationship of the Father, the Son, the Spirit in, in theological thought of prayer throughout Christian centuries. Where is this coming from? Well, I had you all turn to Ephesians 2. I want you to see just one of the passages where this is coming from. Ephesians 2, verse 18, says this. Let's just start in verse 13. It says, But now in Christ Jesus, you who are once far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility, right? We see that this is talking about Jesus. Then you jump down to verse 18, and it says, For through him we both, Jew and Gentile, have access in one spirit to the Father. So you see this language here, this very language that Bunyan's using. For through the Son we have access in one spirit to the Father. The flow and the outline that I want to work with you today on, and this question, and I told you question two is where we're going to spend the most amount of our time, is that theologians for a long time have said that prayer is to the Father through the Son in or by the Holy Spirit. To the Father through the Son 
and in the Spirit or by the Spirit. There's a a theological flow to our prayer life. Fred Sanders, who wrote another book on the Trinity called The Deep Things of God. It's it's an excellent book. He talks about just kind of like wood has a grain and you, wanna, you don't want to go against the grain. You want to go with the grain. He says that prayer has a grain to it. There is a grain to our prayer life running from the Spirit through the Son to the Father. And this flow affects how we pray even when we as Christians aren't aware of it. So right now, if you're going, I'll just, I'll just put you at ease. If you're going, I've never thought of that before, to the Father, through the Son, by the Spirit. Am I actually praying? Yes, you are. You're fine. Some of you probably have much better prayer lives than I do. What I'm hinting at more so is that this is what's happening even when we don't fully understand what's going on. And I want to consider these realities together. So if you're a note taker, these are going to be kind of sub points. We're going to talk about prayer to the Father. We're going to talk about prayer through the Son. We're going to talk about prayer in the Spirit. And what does this mean? And how does this shape our prayer life? And I want to let you know, this is extremely applicable. Even going over my notes this week to get ready for this, I I was just refreshed about the reality of prayer and how good it is that we can go to God and how great these realities shape our prayer. Let's get into it. So let's talk about praying to the Father. Praying to the Father. Luke 13.2. Jesus, or yeah, I'll be back in Luke 13.2. Luke 11.2. Luke 11.2. I'm back in Luke chapter 11. Jesus is praying. His disciples say, teach us how to pray. How should we pray? And his response begins with, Father. Pray, Father. Same in Matthew 6. Most New Testament prayers are addressed to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the concept of Father is not a New Testament invention when it comes to God. Exodus 4.22, God says, Tell Moses that God wants to rescue his firstborn, Israel, his son, Deuteronomy, verse chapter 1, 131, says God carries his people as a father carries his son and disciplines them as a man disciplines his son. God shows compassion, Psalm 103, just as a father has compassion on his children. In the New Testament, both Paul, Peter exhort believers to refer to God as father. But what stands out in Luke 11 is it's, it's not just that Jesus wants the disciples to call God Father. He's imploring them to refer to God as their Father. God is to be addressed using this very simple term. Now, the Greek word here is pater. It means it has the idea of intimacy, respect, though it's used by children. It's It also provides reverence and position. Here's what you need to understand about this. This is about more than just a formula. This is about the nature of who God is. When you pray to God as Father, you're praying to Him about more than just His position. But you're praying to Him in regards to His disposition. His attitude. See, for many of us, when we think of God as Father, for many Christians, when they think of God as Father, uh, the the perception is in some sort of range as something stale or something terrifying. 
The father is viewed as either some sort of wrathful tyrant or some sort of emotionless sovereign. But one thing we often forget about God the Father is that he's infinite in love. Here's Owen again. Owen says, Christians are fully persuaded of Christ's love and goodwill to them. But, they, but the difficulty they have is whether the Father accepts them and loves them. That's not an uncommon thought, right? We think of Jesus as the loving one, the peaceful one, the tender one. The Father's kind of whole, you know, cold, hard. You know, the Father's the one. Jesus is the one that dies for sinners. The Father's the one that kind of drowned a bunch of Egyptians and opened up the ground. That's what we think about. We have this kind of dichotomy that exists in our minds. That's very much how, you know, pagan religions view God. You know, pagan religions view God as he's kind of angry. And so when your, you know, your crops aren't growing and your animals are dying, someone must be angry. The gods must be upset with one of us. So we're going to, you know, just, we're going to pick Tom over here. We're going to throw Tom in the volcano. And now the gods might be happy with us, right? That's, that's the pagan view of who God is. He's angry, he needs to be appeased. And sometimes we can put that same kind of perspective on God the Father. But listen to these verses. You, you know these, 2 Corinthians 13, 14. It says, The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Interesting. Who does, who does Paul attribute love to there? The Father. How about 1 John 4, 8? Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. What does that mean that God is love? It means that love, at at the very essence, love is who God is. It's not just that he displays love. It's that he is love. That it's so much of who he is in his being. It's not just something he possesses. It's who he is. That means that there has never been a moment in history where God, the Father, has not expressed love. Never been a moment where he hasn't loved. This is not just one of the Father's many moods. Reeves writes this, rather, he is love. He could not not love. If he did not love, he would not be Father. Oh, and again, helps us says the father is to oops i'm ahead of myself says the father is to be seen as the fountain or source of all other acts of god's grace to us it's it starts with his love and so because of that what you find in luke 11 is not just that he is father in his position but god the father is fatherly in his disposition his attitude towards us we read these little parables the, this this benevolence shows the very heart of God the Father. We have the first one there in Luke 5 to 8. You know, there's this picture of someone's at their home. They have a guest come over in the middle of the night. They're expected to give them some sort of food. They don't have any food in the cupboard, like old Mother Hubbard of old. And what they do then is they go to their neighbor's house and they knock on the door and say, hey, I need some food for, for my guest that's come. And in the picture, Jesus is saying is, you know, it's not because of the kindness of the person's heart that they'll wake up and get out of bed and give them some food, but it's more so out of annoyance 
They're just bugged, like finally, just to get you to stop knocking, I'll give you some bread, get out of here and go give your surprise visitor some food. What this is saying is, is comparison is that, that God the Father answers our request in a much greater way, not out of annoyance, but out of kindness. He says, all of us, look at us, we're, we're evil, and yet even the dads in this room if your son were to ask you for a fish, you wouldn't give him a snake, would you? That's not talking about pets there. That's talking about food and provision, so maybe it breaks down a little bit. But right, he's saying if he, if he asks for an egg, we won't give him a scorpion. The point is that the father is a father par excellence. He is always fatherly and kind to his children. His position towards them is always that of a loving father. Friend, think about what that does to your prayer life. When you go to God the Father, how often has it been that because you failed, because you didn't keep a promise you said you were going to keep, that your feeling is that you're going to a disappointed dad instead of a benevolent, kind, gracious father? Doesn't that just change your posture? I'm not talking about flippancy here. I'm just saying there's, there's a confidence there. There's a tenderness. There's a nearness that we have. Jesus' illustrations here in Luke 11 are about more than just persistence. They're about expectation. We should expect God to be fatherly because that's who he is at his core. He's a father. Michael Reeves says that all his ways are beautifully fatherly. What an impact that has on our prayer life. But let's ask a question then. Let's ask a question. And this, this jumps now. We were talking about praying to the Father. Let's talk about praying through the Son. How is that possible? We're, you know, we're here at Grace Community Church. You're well-taught people. And if you've gone through the membership class, you know that what are, what, are what are our distinctives? We have a high view of God. We have a sufficient view of Scripture. That is, we believe sufficient is Scripture, not just a good enough view of Scripture. And we also believe that man is sinful. We have a low view of man. And so because of our understanding of, God, of man's sin, we know that man not only rebels against God, that he loves to rebel against God. He thinks rebellion is delicious and satisfying. And in all his ways, he, he sins. The heart is a factory of idols. We know that our sin should separate us from God. Owen again says, no man in his natural state has fellowship with God. So how is this possible? How is it that we can actually go to God and he legitimately be father? Not just some sort of fanciful idea, but this be objectively true. The answer is through Jesus Christ. Because we're saved by Christ, the Father is truly our Father. Here's, uh, here's Owen again. Christ then is the foundation of all our communion with God. By the Spirit, believers now receive boldness and faith. But Christ is the foundation. I mean, now think about prayer in light of verses like John 14, 6. Where Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one gets to the Father but through me. How? It's because Jesus died for our sins. And he rose from the dead. And he secured our hope and given us a, a sure hope for the future. Jesus is our mediator. So, so 1 Timothy 2, 5 and 6 says, For there is one God and one mediator also, mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, 
who gave himself as a ransom for all, the testimony given at the proper time. Galatians 3.13 says, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law. How? Having become accursed for us. That is that through Christ, all enmity between God and us has been removed. That he's no longer our enemy because of our sin. It's only through Jesus. Turn, if you would, to Hebrews 4, 14. Let's go to Hebrews chapter 4. We'll be done in Luke 11. We're going to jump around. We'll be in Hebrews a bit, and then we'll be in Romans a bit. Hebrews chapter 4. Foundational to this acceptance, the fact that we can actually, can I really go to God and approach him as my loving father? Foundational to that is Jesus's high priestly ministry. So let's read 4.14. says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. Now, in the Old Testament, the nation of Israel would have a high priest who would once a year go in through the veil to make atonement for the nation. It was once a year, and it was not a perfect system. Why? Because the man himself had his own sin he had to deal with. The high priest had to perform the ritual every year because of the sinfulness and the impermanence of the sacrifice that was made. Uh, He could not linger there long because of his own sin and God's holiness. And eventually this high priest would die and they would have to pick another one. But Jesus says, is an eternal high priest before the father. Jesus makes the perfect and eternal sacrifice on our behalf. It says that he has passed through the heavens. The idea there that he is unlike those who merely pass through the veil for a time. He has passed through the heavens. He stands at the right hand of the father. This is who Christ is. He has paid for our sin once and for all. And what's the result of that? Verse 16. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. The result, we approach the throne of grace. And we don't get a talking to, and we don't get a rebuking, and we don't get a, oh, here you are again, confessing that again, asking for help with that again. But we get help because he is our permanent high priest. Take a look at Hebrews 7. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 23. This is the former high priest were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. Tends to happen still. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, as a result, because he's eternal, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. That is, we have access to God through Christ. There is no annoyance. There is no shutdown. There is no access denied. But it's because we are in Christ, we have access to the Father. Have you ever wondered why we as Christians pray in Jesus' name? That's not like a secret formula. Like, you know, if you pray this, it adds a little extra oomph to your prayer and God might hear it more. No, it's because we pray in Jesus' name, we have confidence that he hears us. But it's more than just that. Let's jump to one other idea with through the Son. 
So through the Son, it's because Jesus paid for our sin, we have real relationship, communion with God. But it's not just Jesus' high priestly ministry that gives us access. It's not just Jesus' high priestly ministry why we believe that God the Father is our Father. It's also the doctrine of adoption. The doctrine of adoption. John 1.12, I have it up here. But to all who did receive him, being Christ, who believed in his name, to them he gave the right to become children of God. That we as Christians can really say that we're children of God. We're, we're God's child. Now the word here is children. And this is true. We could talk all about adoption from this verse. Uh, it's the word technon. And one commentator points out, you know, Jesus is the son and we are the children. And it's true. And Jesus is in a different position than we are. But I want you to look at this, this other verse as well. Romans eight fourteen it says, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Now, why does Paul here use sons? He could easily use children. In fact, in Romans 8, he uses the word children. But why does he use that word here? What is Paul saying? Well, I think he's doing something very intentional here, and it should be a great comfort to us. That our sonship before the Father is rooted in Jesus' sonship with the Father. That we are sons of God in a way that correlates with the Son of God. Let me say it differently. Because Jesus is the Son of God by nature, we sinners who put our faith in him can become sons of God by grace. That we are sons truly, co-heirs with Christ. So much for, get this, that in John 17, 23, Jesus is praying, he says, I and them, you and me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and that you loved them even as you have loved me. That if you're a Christian and you pray to God as your father, that he has all the same affection and warmth and kindness towards you as he has towards his son. That you love them, believers, even as you loved me. He loves us as Christ because we're in Christ. One pastor preaching on that just said, after that, he goes, brush your teeth with that fact in the morning. As you sit there, go, I am loved by God the Father with all the eternal fervency and strength and passion that the Father has for the Son because I've been adopted in Christ. Doesn't that change your prayer life? Doesn't that change how you go to him again? How you go to him with repeated prayer? How you pray for that which you know you should have been praying for long before? He loves us truly. Because Jesus is the son and because we come to him through him, our father is father indeed, truly. 
Next, let's talk about in the spirit. In the spirit, and I told you, if you're a note taker, this will be the one we spend the most time on. What, what does it mean that we pray in the spirit? You're, uh, you can go ahead and turn to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. Now, now praying in the spirit is a little, is a little tough. Praying in the spirit is actually used multiple times in the Bible. So Ephesians 6, 18 says, pray at all times in the spirit. And Jude 20 says, but you, beloved, building yourselves up in the most holy faith and praying in the spirit. So we're told to pray in the spirit. What does that mean to pray in the spirit? I mean, we know we're supposed to walk in the spirit. Ephesians 5, 18, we're supposed to be filled with the spirit. Well, I'll, I'll give a couple of suggestions. You know, the, we often see this pattern in scripture that, that the spirit is accompanied with truth. So John 14, he's called the spirit of truth. Uh, Ephesians 6, it's called the sword of the spirit. That's what the word is referred to as. Um, we see Second Peter, that the spirit is part of the process of inspiration, that, uh, that the, the authors wrote scripture under the influence of the spirit. We understand the spirit, but through, or, sorry, we understand the word through illumination. Second Corinthians 4. And dependence on the Spirit is required. So I, there is a sense here where I think this could mean, and where this, this, there's this understanding that we're depending on the Spirit to pray in faith, to pray with boldness, and to pray for that which is true. Romans 8.26, which we'll look at a little bit later, says that we don't even know how to pray as we ought. So, Lord, help me to pray rightly. Spirit helps us to pray for what is true. That is a, a big part of prayer in the Spirit, but I don't think that's all that prayer does, or that the Spirit does in helping us with our prayer. Romans chapter 8. What else does the Spirit do for us? Well, in, in Romans 5, 5, up here on the screen, we read that the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit. Okay, we see that, that there's something about the love of God being poured in our hearts through the Spirit. What does that mean? Well, I think clarity on that comes from Romans 8, verses 14 to 16. Reads this. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Now notice that language and notice up here Galatians 4, 5, and 6. Very similar. Verse 6 says, because you are sons of God, God has sent forth the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. What is this saying about the Spirit's role in prayer? Let's think about the theological flow again. We pray to God as Father because He is our Father. That is true because we come through the Son. And you believe that's true because of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit informs our inner spirit, our inner person, that we in fact are children of God. It's where the confidence comes from. It's that we cry out and truly believe that God is our Father because the Spirit has worked in your heart to do so. 
Now, think about this. In our fallen nature, when we fully recognize our sin, we have no confidence that God is truly our Father. I mean, you know that, right? Even as a believer, you've been saved for a long time. There are times where you have a hard time believing God as Father because you look at your own sin this past week, you look at your doubt from the past week, the past month, and you're just going, I just don't feel the warmth, the fatherliness of God. I just don't believe it. I believe it, but I don't believe it. John Bunyan hits on this. He says, oh, how great a task it is for a poor soul that becomes sensible of sin and the wrath of God to say in faith, but this one word, Father. How hard it is for the sinner to say to God, Father. Oh, saith he, I dare not call him Father. And hence it is that the Spirit must be sent into the heart of God's people for this very thing to cry, Father. It being too great a work for any man to do knowingly and believingly without it. Friends, we don't in our natural state believe God is our father. But by the Spirit's help, we do. You can enjoy the fatherliness of God because the Spirit stirs up our hearts to believe on Christ and therefore believe that God is truly our father. I mean, even think about even the relation to our sin. When we are walking in sin, we're not depending on the Spirit, we're resisting Him. Aren't those the times when we find it most difficult to believe that God is Father? And yet when we're filled with the Spirit, there's a sense, a real sense where we feel the Father's warmth. That's our summary. We come to Father as Father truly. And He is our Father, and He's your Father because of Christ the Son. And you believe that because the Spirit awakened your heart to believe on Christ fully. And He has awakened your heart to trust in God the Father as your Father. Through the Son, confidence in the Spirit, such that we call on God as Father. Friend, is that the mark of your prayer life? Do you see that in your own life? The communion with a loving Father. Praying in Jesus' name, confident in the Spirit. All these truths are for us. They're ours. They've been given to us for our confidence and communion with God. What a joy. What an amazing privilege that is. Let's jump to the third question. Uh, We'll spend less time on these last two. How do I pray to the triune God? How do I pray to the triune God? Let's get back to the original question that uh, maybe drew some of you in here, which is, okay, I, I get how I pray, but how do I pray to, the, to three persons? Do I need to pray to Father and then Son and then Spirit? Will one of them get angry that I'm not giving them as much time? Uh, what if I don't remember the flow or whatever? Um, what do I do with this? Who do I pray to? Well, let, let's think about a couple things here. First, we do see examples, uh, plenty of examples of praying to the Father in the New Testament. We see a few examples of praying to Jesus in the New Testament. We see Stephen crying out when he gets stoned. We see one of the prayers of Paul in Acts. Um, but we don't see any prayers to the Spirit. So how do we think about this? And, and there's, there's two words I, I want to write down to just help us out here. Um, you could jot these down. The, the words are unity and simplicity. Unity and simplicity. That the, the, the triune God is both unified but simple. And you're like, That's not simple. That's heady. But that's not what I mean by simple here. When I think unity is, you need to remember that the three are one. 
and that the one is three. Unity is that the three, or sorry, unity is that the one is three, and the three are one in simplicity. That is, you, you don't want to dive too far into God's oneness, and you don't want to dive too far into the three. But you want to have both of these realities in mind. So as we explore this topic, we don't want to become accidental uh, tritheists where we invent three gods that we're speaking to. Um, and at the same time, we, we don't want to become modalist where, uh, you guys know what modalism is? Modalism is the idea that um, you've heard the illustration like, God is like the water cycle. Sometimes he's ice and sometimes he's liquidy and sometimes he's steamy and, and that's what God is like. And that's not what God is like. That's like, that's one God putting on three different masks. Uh, Michael Reeves calls it moodalist. He has different moods. That's not it. Just No, he's one God who eternally exists in three persons who are co-equal, co-exist. That must exist in our minds. So we have to have this balance of God is one, Deuteronomy 6, 4. And yet Matthew 28 talks about in the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit. So have that balance in mind, having that caution. Who do I pray to? And there's actually, believe it or not, some debate on this. And I think the answer is going to be a little somewhere in the middle. So hang with me here for a little bit. So Owen, who have already addressed a ton, you can guess, is pretty adamant that you're good to pray to all three of them. Um, he, he, he says, when we worship, we worship the divine nature. So it is impossible to worship any one person in the Godhead without worshiping all three. That makes sense. I, I, I see. He, he says prayer to the Son and prayer to the Spirit are possible because both are God. He says this, The Holy Spirit being God is no less to be prayed to and called on than the Father and the Son. When we pray to the Spirit, we remember that the Spirit is God overall, blessed forever. And, and what Owen will say is, is worship is communion. And therefore, you could worship the Son and worship the Spirit. And we commune with them when we worship them appropriately. So we worship the Son appropriately when we praise Him for His high priestly ministry. We praise Him for the way that He perfectly reflects the Father and all His attributes. Praise Him for the way how He's purchased with His blood a multitude from every tribe and tongue and nation. How our sin is finished at the cross forever. Uh, you could praise the Son for that. Owen says you could praise the Spirit for His work for regeneration, for helping you understand the scriptures, for, for um, sanctification, for growing you. He, he would say it's, it's inappropriate to get them mixed up. So don't thank the Father for dying on the cross. Don't thank the Spirit for being our great high priest. Like, keep, <laughs> keep things where the, the scriptures say they are appropriate. But he says it's, it's appropriate to have fellowship with the Spirit. He, says we, he actually goes far to say we must worship them appropriately for who they are. Fred Sanders, who I mentioned earlier, when he asked the question, what should you do? He says, well, there is a, a grain to Scripture. There is praying to the Father through the Son in the Holy Spirit. So is it okay to pray to uh, Son and Spirit? Sanders would actually say yes and no. He, here's his quote. I'll, I'll read it for you. He says, the theologically correct answer is pray to the Father in the name of the Son through the power of the Holy Spirit. That's the right way. Logically, that's how prayer works. And then he writes, at the same time, the theological flow of prayer exists even when people don't realize it. So even prayers to Jesus are in Jesus' name. As we say, even prayers are, it's, it's still going to be by the Spirit. 
So, so what do we do with this? Uh, you're like, Josh, are you answering my question or not? I'm not. I'm punting a little bit because that's what I'm supposed to do. But let me tell you what you do know. Here's what you do know. Prayer is not a formula, right? We talked about the beginning. Prayer is about communion with God. So if your heart is stirred up to praise Jesus, don't be like, well, does that fit the... No, worship Christ as your king. If you want to give praise and thanks to the Spirit, do that. And at the same time, have this understanding that it's coming to a father in the son with the confidence that comes from the Holy Spirit. That application is going to look different in your lives. Some of you, because of that, are going to praise Jesus more and praise the Spirit more. And some of you are specifically going to pray to the Father. And I think that's okay. I don't think one is more godly than the other. As long as your mind is informed by Scripture, that you're worshiping, that you're communing personally, that you're responding in truth. Does that make sense? We could talk about that later. Here's what I'm saying. Next time you're at a prayer meeting and you're sitting next to someone that starts with, Dear Jesus, don't like, don't whack them. Hey, to the Father. Like, no, no, it's totally okay. It's fine. If you want to pray to the Father, you know, don't do it smugly. You're like, okay, I'll go next. Dear Heavenly Father. Like, well, that's not what I want to create here either. I don't want to create those that are policing the Trinity with everything, as long as like, you know, it's Orthodox Trinity and, and it's true stuff. Uh, what I'm saying is, I think there's room to do both because the Spirit and the Son are God fully. And there's also this flow. Let's go to the last one. Last one, it will be done. How does the triune God pray for me? Thank you all for, for going through this. This is a, taking some time with this one. This will be a last one. How does the triune God pray for me? We're talking about praying to the Son. You can turn to Romans 8 if you're not there. We're talking about praying to the Father through the Son by the Spirit. Talked about maybe even worshiping both. But here's just something that you got to see. No matter how we are praying, God the Son is praying for you. And God the Spirit intercedes for you. So you're in Romans chapter 8. Let me give you a couple other verses. Hebrews 7, 25. It says, Consequently, he, Jesus, is able to save to the other most, those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Hebrews 9, 24. For Christ has entered, not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven. And now he appears in the presence of God on our behalf. And then you read Romans 8, 34 which says, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Now, what is Jesus praying for? You know, the only hint we really get is in John 17, where we read his high priestly prayer. And I'll just give you a few highlights of that. He prays that believers would be kept in the Father's name, they'd be kept from the evil one, sanctified in truth, that they'd see his glory in heaven one day. Now, the theme of the prayer overall seems to be Christian unity. Yet these three texts, Hebrews 7, Hebrews 9, right here, Romans chapter 8, there's this idea of his atoning death. Now, what is Jesus praying for? He is not praying that God would wipe away your sins again in a legal sense, because that's been done, right? Romans 8, no condemnation in Christ. Gospel of John, it is finished. Colossians 2, all your sin has been nailed to the cross at Calvary. Done, paid for, never to be applied to you again. Amen to that. 
But he does stand as this permanent reminder that you belong to God the Father. And 1 John 1.9 says that if we confess our sins, but that's talking about believers confessing our sins. In fact, 1 John 2 says that we have an advocate with the Father. You know how 1 Timothy 2 says we have a mediator? Do you know the difference between a mediator and an advocate is? A mediator stands between two parties and makes them right. An advocate stands between two parties and stands with one of them. The Son stands with sinners permanently and eternally before the Father saying, I bought them. They still belong to you. They failed again, but they still belong to you and that sin has been paid for. Isn't that amazing news? Doesn't it even increase how much confidence we can have that God is our Father? So what is he praying for? Well, you know, commentators beyond that would say, surely then... Obviously, it makes sense that he's praying for our continuation, that he's praying for a lot of those same things we see in John 17, because those are the byproduct of what he accomplished at Calvary on the cross. How amazing it is that in our prayers, Jesus prays for us. And we also read that the Spirit prays for us. So take a look. Romans 8, 26 says, Likewise, the Spirit helps in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. We know that. We've been in those moments where like, I don't even know what to pray right now. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. We don't always know what to pray. We don't always know what God's will is in the situation. How many times have you sat with a younger believer as they're praying and you've thought to yourself, they're not even praying for the right thing right now. Come on, saints in the room have walked with Jesus for a while. You've heard that. You've just gone, they're praying, they're sincere, but they're not praying for the right thing. Their heart's in the wrong spot. You've experienced that. You know who else kind of experiences that? It's God the Father. As we come to him with this idea of what we should be praying for, and we do not know how to pray as we ought. And that's where the Spirit comes and enhances our prayer, such that our prayers are what they're supposed to be. I love when celebrities uh, write their own biography. I mean that sarcastically. Uh, And it's funny because their writing is so eloquent, and some of them, when you hear them talk, they're not as eloquent. And why is that? Well, it's because they have an editor. They have something helping them. You know, us, I I just wonder what our speech and our own fallen nature must sound like before the Father. This sort of fumbling and out of order. We don't know what to say. Or sometimes we've experienced that personally, right? We've gone through tragedy. We've gone through unexpected trials. We just like... I know I need to go to God. God, I don't even know what to say right now. I just need you. I don't even know what to pray for right now. You know who's praying for us in that moment? The Spirit. Helping us pray exactly what it is we need to pray so that the Father knows exactly what we need even before we ask. And that he provides for us 
even when we didn't even know what to ask to be provided for. Amazing. Such grace. We pray to a loving Father. We get to pray through the Son. We pray by the Spirit as the Son and Spirit are praying on our behalf. Know this, Christian. As you pray, the Son is praying for you and the Spirit is praying for you. So what? What are some takeaways here? I'll just give you three thoughts. Number one, as a child of God, cast your cares upon him. What richness to go know that we go to the Father as our true Father? Are you rejoicing in and enjoying that privilege? Are you, are you the, the second one would be make time to experience the joy of communion. Are you taking time to rejoice in the eternal privilege? We, we make time for all these other relationships. And it's not like, oh, lonely God, if I don't talk to him, don't think like that. Just you're missing out on fellowship with the Father who loves you who's always loved you, who won't stop loving you. Do you, know, do you know why the Father will never stop loving you? It's because he never started loving you. If you're elect in Christ, there's never been a moment in history where the Father's kind love hasn't been towards you. That's amazing. That is the God that we serve. Which is why I think the third so what would be to come to this God. Surely in a room this size, there, there might be somebody who has not placed their trust in Jesus Christ. Friend, I want to let you know what you've heard today is not that there's a God who's just angry and wrathful towards you, though his anger and wrath is real. But we have a God who is kind and gracious and shows warmth and forgiveness and love to sinners. Come to this God if you've not trusted in him with all your sin, knowing that Christ is sufficient to pay for it. Far from turning prayer into a cold intellectual exercise, what we've seen today, I hope and I pray that the doctrine of the Trinity provides direction and beauty to Christian prayer. Christians have been granted access to the Father as their Father and have been given the benefits of sonship in the Son and the assurance of things coming from the Spirit who helps us cry out, Abba, Father. Let's spend time praying in communion to him. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for your grace in Christ Jesus. Praise you, God, that we come to you now in spite of you knowing all our sin, that we stand as beloved sons, as children of God. God, we thank you for the gift of your spirit, which grants us the assurance of adoption that by him, through your son, we might know that you are truly our father. God, I pray that that would be a comfort to us. Pray that that would be an encouragement. Pray that that would stimulate us to love and good deeds. I pray as a father, along with fellow fathers in this room, that that might even shape the way we act as parents. Most of all, God, I pray it would draw us in closer intimacy with you, Lord. We long for the day to be reunited with you in heaven where you will be our father and we will be your people. Help us to be faithful until then. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.